Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and today I'm delighted to have as my guest, David Schreiner-Kahn. David, welcome to my show. Thanks so much, Meredith. Um, Thank you for having me on. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, David. And before we jump into the questions I've got, I'd like to more formally introduce you to my audience. David... After 28 years as a highly skilled employee, he was told that his job was over. And in spite of the immediate trauma and fear, he knew that as his next step, he'd rather work for himself and have more control over his destiny. That happened to me too, David. (laughs) In David's case, the year was 2006. And today, he is a thriving entrepreneur, podcaster, and speaker. He's busy guiding highly skilled professionals who are recovering from a late career job loss and who yearn to impact the world with their knowledge and creativity by becoming successful entrepreneurs. David is the host of two popular podcasts for consultants, coaches, and entrepreneurs. Uh, One is Smashing the Podcast the plateau, excuse me, where where I've been a guest um, two different times. And the other one is going solo. Both of them have as a focus building a successful business. So David, we're going to get into your podcast in a little bit just to understand more about why you started them and how that sort of parallels the work someone might do in starting their own consulting practice. But first, tell us a little bit about your journey from your job in the corporate world to the work that you're doing today. Um, Well, the reality is uh, that um, I I did make a significant shift in 2006 when I went from being an employee to being an entrepreneur. Um, Like many folks that have spent a long time in the in the working world as an employee, I had developed um, a deep set of skills in a, in a particular discipline. In my case, it was primarily uh, finance and operations of nonprofits. And I had reached a point in my career where it was time for a transition. Um, And the reality was I had been in the same organization for, by the time I left, it was 18 years, which is a long time. It's um, it's a lot longer than most people stay in jobs these days. Yes. Uh, um, and there were indications that my job might end um, as far back as a year before it did end. It had no- nothing at all to do with my performance, but there were um, there were activities going on in the organization that I knew could end up duplicating. Um, my skill sets. Mm -hmm. And the most logical progression for me, if I had um, stayed inside organizations as an employee, would be I was in a number two position. Um, I was a vice president level. So the 
most logical step in the nonprofit world would have been for me to become a CEO or executive director of another organization. And um, I had thought about this quite a bit um, over the course of the last um, year to year and a half that I had been in my job. And I really wanted to have more control over my destiny and chose the entrepreneurial path and became a consultant, which is a pretty common transition. And the other thing about it was um, this was not the first time that I had um, that my job ended um, for not, not for performance issues very early in my career. I started off as, a, as an engineer and I was working for a midsize engineering consulting firm um, and the company had lost a lot of business and ended up uh, having to lay off about half the staff. Um, and, and the first time that, and this was, that was the first time that it happened to me. Um, and, and at that point, um, I should have been paying attention to the signs, but I was young and was not so savvy about these things and was quite blindsided by it. And it took me, um, took me a good bit of time to sort of figure out what I wanted to do next and how to do it. Um, and, and the reason that I went into the not-for-profit sector was I wanted, um, wanted to be in a different environment, not the, not the sort of traditional corporate environment. Um, which was, it was a very satisfying career for a long time. And so the idea of doing something that um, sort of mid, I guess, mid-career, middle-aged, some people may view as being quite risky. To me, since I had already done something that was probably a bigger transition, um, didn't seem to me like it was such a great risk. So when you left and decided to start your business, what caused you to focus on the kind of consulting work that you did and what did that consist of? Right, so initially um, I hung out a shingle as a, non, as a nonprofit management consultant because that was, that was my world, that was my, uh, my skill set. And I started getting work um, pretty early on that fit, fit that profile. Um, uh, and as with most entrepreneurs, the, the business that, um, that came along, in some cases, it was proactive that I was seeking in other cases, the business found me. Um, so the kind of clients that I had started to uh, shift and the business evolved. And I, in particular, started picking up some small business clients, which was something that was not on my radar screen initially, but I realized that the skill sets that I had were, um, were really applicable to any organization. My skill set was really in the sort of, uh, I would say, small to mid-size organizations. That's where I'd spent most of my career. So organizations with fewer than... than um, I don't know, maybe I would say fewer than 100 employees was most common. And there are lots of businesses in America that fit that profile. And I started uh, through networking and other marketing means coming in contact with owners of these kinds of businesses and they, um, they needed help and they wanted help. So business started to, to shift and evolve. And now you're really helping a lot of these folks that have had these professional careers in the corporate world lose their jobs or get 
get the sense as you did that things are not going to be positive for them going forward in this particular organization. And so why is it, since you work with so many of them, I'm curious, what is it that causes them to decide that a consulting or coaching um, service firm is something that would, would be a good next step for them? Um, So for many of these folks, um, particularly those that have spent 20 plus years in their role, um, whether it's in one organization or multiple organizations, they often get to a point where they get tired of the corporate environment and they want more control over um, what kinds of clients they work with, uh, who their colleagues are. They may have... um, had some negative experiences with, um, with, with one or more supervisors. You know, often what happens, especially when, you're, um, when you start to get seasoned, is the, uh, you end up with a, a new supervisor who has no personal history with you. Mm. And right, they have to make a name for themselves. And often it's the more seasoned employees with the highest price tag that end up paying the... Um, they uh, p- paying the price for being in that relationship. So, um, you know, it, it often it often results in um, f- feeling like you're not particularly valued. Um, your voice may not be heard as much as you think it should be heard. Um, you may be overlooked for. Um, for certain kinds of assignments, you may be um, find, You may find that your career is no longer advancing. You're not being promoted when you should be. You're not getting salary increases when you should be. And um, have, having more control is, becomes a pretty big issue. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And I can see where you would be uniquely positioned to understand where they're coming from, because it sounds like they're seeing different um, evidence of the handwritings on the wall in terms of a mismatch. So they, they eventually get pretty uh, unhappy. What are some of the challenges that folks who are trying to start their own business from this kind of experience what are some of the unique challenges that they have that you've discovered over time in your work with them that might not be as common knowledge to everybody? Well, one of the basic things that happens is you realize that when you start your own consulting or coaching business, that you're it. So you're, you're the chief cook and bottle washer and you're responsible for everything. And suddenly there is no IT department. There is no human resources department. <laughs> there is no marketing and sales department. Um, there's no customer service department. There's no operations department. There's you. And so um, depending upon what uh, what discipline you were in and what, what experiences you've had and what skill sets you have, you're probably really good at some of those but you're unlikely to be good at all of them. Um, So the first thing you've got to figure out is uh, where you can shine and you can do things yourself and where you need help. Um, And one of the hardest things to realize, especially for high achieving professionals that have, um, that have experienced a lot of accomplishments is that, um, you don't know all the answers and you are going to need help. And it's really important to figure out what kind of help you need and how to get it. 
So how do you guide them to recognize this this challenge? Because I've been there myself, you know, as a solo consultant many years ago. Thankfully, I've got two business partners now that have strengths that I don't. But for these individuals, how do you help them move as quickly as possible to a place where they are comfortable with outsourcing, whether it's hiring employees or, you know, um, just bringing on contract folks? Well, the first thing you've got to realize, even before you get to that point, is that the, the job loss, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, is, um, is going to take a toll on your self-identity, your ego, and your emotional state. You know, we're, we're very, especially um, high-achieving professionals, we're very tied to like our, our self-identity, our self-image, and our... Um, our own self-worth and our self-confidence are very much tied to what we do for a living. Like when you meet somebody new, one of the first things they often ask you is, oh, Meredith, what do you do? Um, mm-hmm. and, and right, so there, there's a lot of emotional baggage tied up with that answer. Um, so the first thing to do is just realize that your job loss, and, and this is um, especially true if the, the timing of the decision was not your own. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you, you're actually going through a loss and it's, um, you know, you're, you're suffering grief. Um, and there are some similarities to what happens when you lose a loved one, you've actually lost something that's very close to you mm-hmm. and you, you need to understand that you need to actually, um, realize what you're experiencing and, um, and it's okay to experience it. And it's going to take just like with with um, the loss of a, a loved one or a family member, you um, it takes time for you to go through the the grief process. So realize that that the emotional piece is actually going to take time. Um, if you have the financial wherewithal to quote unquote take time off and not feel pressure to be producing in a new um, in a new role that's bringing in income, if you have, have time to be able to have a pause, um, you will be, you'll do much better once you start to focus on uh, an actual business activity. Uh, so one of the things I advise people is find a way to take a pause. If you don't have the financial uh, resources to not have income for a period of time, one thing you can do is try to get yourself some kind of interim work that is going to provide some income, even if it's not quite enough to cover all of your living expenses. Um, If again, like if you have some assets that you could draw on if you need to, but supplement that with some, um, some short-term income again, where the income is not so tied to your self-identity, it's something that you, you look at and whoever you're doing the work for looks at as, um, as kind of an interim step, mm-hmm. then it'll give you time to deal with the emotional fallout and also do some self-assessment because the self-assessment is really important. I see too many people jump into um, trying to get clients and uh, before they're ready to. And what ends up happening is they they end up wasting a lot of time uh, because 
what, what you need to do is once you have that pause and you've done the self-reflection, there are a few things you re really need to understand about yourself and about um, the marketplace. Um, the first piece is the, the self-reflection, which is what is it you really love to do and what are you most competent at doing? Then when it comes to the marketplace, who do you feel most compelled to serve and why? And what kinds of problems do you think they have that you can solve? And then you need to do a little bit of market research. And um, you're making an assumption that there's a certain target population that has a particular problem and where you can help them. Um, you have to actually confirm that by talking to people in your target audience. And this is a step that many people skip. And it's one of the most important steps. Um, so you've, you've got to find those people, talk to them, find out if they feel that they have the problem that you think they have. And um, if they also feel compelled to try to solve it and to get help to solve it, and do they have the resources and the willingness to pay for the help to solve it? So if you can answer all those questions, and it's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take you time to do all that. If you can answer all those questions about yourself and about the marketplace, then you can start to synthesize it, put the pieces together, and you'll be in a much better position to make an offer to uh, somebody in your target audience to try to solve their problem. I love that. That's a, a really a gold mine that you've just shared there. Of, because I was going to ask you, what do you recommend somebody do during this pause? And you just laid it out beautifully. I like that you combine both the self-reflection part, <clears throat> the questions you asked there, along with looking at what's viable about my idea uh, that I think I already know, but that asking others really is so critical. And I think one of the other things, David, do you um, encourage folks to think about who's in their existing network that they might reach out to either to ask these questions or to get help in, in one form or another? Uh, the network is really critical. So I'm glad you brought that up, Meredith. Um, network is really critical for a few, a uh, few reasons. One is with the self-reflection, um, there's some work you need to do by yourself because you've got to be able to come up with those answers on your own first, but you also should try to get confirmation from people that know you. Um, ask people um, if they, uh, how much they agree with your assessment and that will help you understand where your greatest value is and help you understand where you can start to create your value proposition because um, what you think is relatively easy and um, you may think there's not much value to it because it's relatively easy for you to actually do it. Um, that's probably where your greatest value is. And you will, um, you can get confirmation of that when you talk to other people who know you well. So that's one way to use your network is this um, kind of feedback and confirmation on your own self-assessment. Mm. Second is when you start to do your market research, you may not know people, you may or may not have people who that are close in in your network that fit your um, 
your target audience. Um, and actually, when you're doing your market research, it's often better to start with um, people that have a, a broad sense of the field. Um, you know, for example, when I started my business, I was um, focused on the, the not-for-profit community. So it would have been beneficial for me to ask somebody that works with the, the not-for-profit community on a kind of broad level, um, like um, there are associations of nonprofits. Mm -hmm. There's a, um, now I'm in New York. There's, there's, a, there's a particularly strong one in New York called the Nonprofit Coordinating Committee that has, um, it's kind of a, like a membership association for nonprofits. So they see what, um, what pain points nonprofit organizations have. So going to speak to somebody, and I did have some contacts there that I spoke to. Uh, so going to speak to somebody there about what they see as some of the trends in, the, in, in your discipline or your sector, that can be really helpful as a first step. Um, second would be to go to people that may work with your audience, but are not necessarily going to be direct competitors with what you think you're going to be offering. Um, so, you know, if, if in, in my case, my focus was primarily finances and operations of nonprofits, I could have spoken to people that were fundraising consultants to ask them about what they saw as some of the, some of the issues. And then lastly would be to speak to somebody who is directly in the target audience. Um, you know, so in my case, it would have been CEOs of nonprofits or executive directors. Um, but I may not know those people initially. And when you're, when you're doing the market research, every time you ask, you meet with somebody who's willing to speak to you and give you some information about the market, one of the questions you should ask is, who else do you know that I should speak to? Um, which will help you zero in on your target. Mm -hmm. And as you're doing that, you will find that you are um, not only able to get a better sense and get confirmation of the pain points where people are willing to get help and willing to pay for the help, you will start to get some leads that way um, of people who might actually become clients. That's an excellent suggestion because sometimes when we're talking to somebody we know, for whatever reason, we hesitate to ask that who else should I talk to about this to find out more about the issues? I just think that's an excellent question for anyone to wrap up a conversation with. And it's a way of expanding your network and not cold calling people. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't occur to folks to ask these questions. I'm just so glad you're bringing them up. But it also makes me think of another question I wanted to ask you about is, what are some of the beliefs that folks have when they are making this shift from corporate to entrepreneur, consultant? What, what might hold them back? What, what thoughts do they have about either themselves or the situation that um, keeps them from, you know, perhaps taking some of the actions they need to? And how do you help them work through those and get past them or expand them? Um, yeah. So w one of the things I see people, um, uh, w one of the beliefs is I'm not going to be able to do this at all. And so they don't try. Mm. Um, uh, another one is they would really like to have their own business, 
yet they're afraid that it's not going to work out. And so they both look for a job and try to build a consulting business at the same time. It's really hard to do both. It's hard enough to do one of them. It's really hard to do both. And so um, I've seen people that have tried to do both and as a result have not succeeded at either, which is not only really frustrating, but that is going to, um, you know, if you're dependent upon having the revenue from either W-2 income or 1099 income, then um, if you're not succeeding at either, it's going to be financially quite painful. Um, but the other thing that I've, that I've seen is um, I've seen people try to do both and then they, um, they do give one up and then the other one is much more likely to succeed. Like there's one um, uh, person I'm thinking about, Lorraine Von Speaks, who was a guest on, on, on my podcast, Going Solo, who had a, um, had a job, the job ended because it was a small business and her, um, her employer closed the business. Um, and so she was out of a job at age 60 and was trying to figure out what to do and was both looking for a job and then trying to pick up clients on the side. She realized after a few months that she was started to pick up clients and decided to give up um, looking for a job. And she went all in on trying to get clients. Um, not only that, but she also was pretty clear about her niche and her skill set, like all the things that I mentioned. Uh, and she actually ended up, because she was so focused on the entrepreneurship piece, she ended up making more money within a year than she was making in her job. Mm. Which, which is quite remarkable. Um, another thing to realize is if you are going from job to job, if your primary source of income is your job, when your job ends, your income goes from 100% to some, not maybe zero because you may have unemployment or other, other sources of income, but it's not going to be like it was from your, um, from your employer. So your income really plummets. The, but if you get another job, the day you start your new job, your income goes right back up to 100%. If you're becoming a consultant or a coach, it is going to take you time to build your income. Um, you know, the, so make no mistake about that. And one of the questions I've asked lots of consultants and coaches that have gone through this transition, um, you know, the answer I hear from most people is um, about two years until they feel like their business has some sustainability. Uh, so be prepared to um, to ha have to um, eat a lot of hamburger <laughs> for, for for a number of months. Mm -hmm. It's um, and and um, you know scale back on your living expenses for a while, um, un unless you're you know you have a nest egg that you're prepared to um, to use to maintain your lifestyle. So yeah, building up a consulting or coaching business is not quick. Um, there are some people that can do it fairly quickly, but I would say. From my experience, that's the exception rather than the rule. Be prepared for it to take, um, you know, two years plus. On the flip side, um, particularly for folks that are age 50 plus, <coughs> your income from a job is not likely to increase substantially. Um, your income from a business can increase substantially if you put all the pieces together. Um, it, the, the, yeah, the, the possibilities for um, financial reward are actually much greater as an entrepreneur. And another thing is, 
uh, you know, many people think that entrepreneurship is very risky. Personally, I think having most of your income come from one source is a lot riskier than being an entrepreneur and trying to build up multiple revenue streams so that if one of them dries up, you still have others that you can depend on. Those are all great points, David. And um, as I was thinking about your guest who had such wonderful uh, experience after she went all in, I really think my listeners want to know what was it she did that, you know, is a reflection of her going all in? What are some of the, the action steps she took or decisions she made that made it possible for her to have such accelerated growth? Uh, so she worked for somebody who was a professional speaker. And so she realized that she had um, knowledge of the industry and she had particular skills that supported people that wanted to make a living by giving paid speeches. Um, so that, that's a particular niche. So it's not just, um, you know, and she, she started off as, um, I would say, um, similar to other kinds of virtual assistant services, but it was very focused on a particular target audience. Um, so she, she is able to help people figure out how to get paid speaking gigs, which is not so simple. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, and it does take, there, there's a, a big administrative component to being able to do that successfully. Um, so she not only understood the administrative component, a component, but she also understood some of the strategy for trying to um, get into places where you could get paid as a speaker. So in, in thinking about how this could apply to listeners, what are the unique skills that you have that would be valuable to a select group? And I think sometimes, David, you brought up a point that uh, I think a lot of times people are concerned about going too narrow, that they might miss out on other opportunities. But what have you found to be most useful for folks or most successful for those who are able to grow their business fairly quickly? Is it narrowing down or trying to appeal to a broader audience? Oh, Meredith, for sure, it's narrowing down but you need to do the market research. Because if you're very narrow and specific, people that you talk to will understand the, the market that you're targeting. They'll understand the pain points. Um, again, you're gonna, you need to get the confirmation about the pain points. And you don't need to speak to that many people. I mean, with the market research, you, if you speak to 10 to 15 people and you keep getting the same answers, it, it tells you you're onto a particular trend. Mm -hmm. It's not like you have to speak to 100 people. I'm talking about, um, you know, maybe a dozen or so. If you keep getting the same information over and over again, um, that's enough. Another mistake people make is they spend a lot of time trying to prepare an offer and prepare lots of marketing material for their offer before they try to sell it. And um, I've seen... Um, I've seen consultants and coaches get very frustrated when they've spent a lot of time trying to prepare a, a program or an offering that ends up falling flat on its face because nobody wants to buy it. 
it's way easier to do your market research and then get somebody to buy a particular offering before you even create it. The, the, the first time you're able to sell it, you will spend many hours um, delivering the solution to your first client that's, that, that ha has that particular problem. Um, but if, you, if it's something that is common to lots of clients, you'll be able to repeat it and it will get easier and easier every time you repeat it. Um, and in parallel to that, um, employees are used to solving complex problems and not necessarily solving the same problem over and over again. Mm. And, and especially highly educated, high achieving professionals thrive in this area of complexity. And from a um, business owner's perspective, the opposite is true. If you're able to solve a, the same problem over and over again for different clients, it will be easier and easier for you to do it. Hence, more profitable the more you do it. Um, because the more experience you have solving the same problem, the higher the price you're able to charge and the less time it's going to take you to actually do it. Such a, an important point, uh, thinking about what, uh, what serves you well inside of an organization but doesn't when you are starting your business. And I think that is... Hmm. That's pure gold for people listening, even if they are experienced uh, in their practices, um, not just starting out. I think there's a lot of wisdom there in looking at leveraging your time, because that's really one of the key things you're talking about, not just being able to uh, you know, charge a higher fee. But once you've created a solution that works, being able to present that and implement it with companies it just seems like it's a lot easier to scale than starting from scratch with custom solutions for each client. It, for sure. Well, let's compare this to you've had your, you know, successful business. Your first podcast was smashing the plateau and then the going solo followed that. So talk about how you got that first one off the ground, because that's like starting a new business and why you saw a need for a second one. Because having a podcast myself, I know how much work it is just to do one. So talk about that from the perspective that would be useful to our listeners who might be starting a new initiative. Um, well, for each one was a was actually a pivot on something that I was already doing. So the first podcast was a pivot on um, a text-based blog that we had been producing for about two years. And um, one of the, one of the outcomes of the blog that, um, that I, I wasn't aware of when I started doing it. I just, initially I wanted to just, create content because I saw I was looking around at other consultants to see what were other people doing that I wasn't doing so I could try to improve my business. And I saw others were creating content. And, um, and this was about, um, gosh, it was probably like eight, nine years ago. Um, you know, so many people in those days had blogs. And so um, we, we started a blog. And from the, you know, I, I'm a planner. So I spent, um, a fair amount of time planning what the content should be and, and, 
and um, and how it should work. I did get some help to get it started. And as part of the, the getting help part, um, we needed to create a schedule of what we were going to produce. And I didn't realize how important that was. Uh, so we were initially producing two posts a week right from the beginning. And then looking, you know, looking back on it and looking at what other people were producing in blogs, I could see many people would post once and then not again for a few weeks, or they might post um, three weeks in a row and then not again for three months. Uh, so we were producing consistent content from the beginning. And then uh, we tapped into my network and started producing five posts a week by doing text-based interviews. And we got some feedback from the audience and the feedback was people wanted greater depth on the, on the content of the interviews. And so we decided to try audio interviews. And I'd listened to podcasts, but I'd never produced one. Um, I did have a, a small team that helped with the process. Um, again, it's, it's like, it's important to know what you, what you can do and what you can't do, what, what you're good at, what you're not good at. Um, you know, I had the relationships with people who could be my guests. Um, I quickly developed more. You and I met through Smashing the Plateau. Um, and it's a great way to meet people and build relationships, both with guests and with your audience. Um, and, um, and initially, the, the first podcast was addressing a, um, a common problem that I saw, which was um, there was a lot of information, especially in the podcasting world, about startups. And the reality is I spent most of my career not on startups, but working on existing organizations that were just trying to do better. And for most business leaders, they spend most of their time working inside organizations, trying to improve the organization, trying to, to you know, pr uh, provide better solutions for their clients and customers and trying to become uh, more profitable. So the focus was, well, how do you do that? And um, yeah, hence the name Smashing the Plateau. We all, as, our, as, as we're uh, generating success, we all hit these roadblocks. And especially the unexpected ones are the hardest to overcome. So we addressed um, all these roadblocks that entrepreneurs face when they're, uh, when they're running their businesses. Um, so it was a you know, heavy emphasis on implementation. And after producing the podcast for several years, uh, I realized that many of the folks that were in our audience were like me, consultants and coaches that worked with various size organizations from very tiny ones to uh, Fortune 500 companies. Um, they all had very similar challenges in their own businesses. And many of them, like you and like me, had a corporate career first, and then they went into consulting or coaching. And so um, I did a little bit of market research on the, the transition from employment to entrepreneurship. And one of the things I discovered in um, numerous conversations with people is that for many people, the transition happens, the, the trigger is you get fired. And you may have wanted to, to start your own business, but you didn't really have the confidence to do it until somebody else pulled the trigger. Um, so after hearing so much from so many people about the, the challenges, 
of that transition, I decided it was time to launch a second podcast that focused on the very early stage of launching your own consulting or coaching business following a late career job loss. That's great, because I think that with my listeners, they may have an interest in one or both of your podcasts. So in wrapping up, because you, you've shared such great information, David, I know that some of my listeners would like to expand their podcast selections to include yours. So um, talk about how people can connect with you, subscribe to your podcasts, and learn more about the services you offer. So the, uh, both podcasts are on the same website, smashingtheplateau.com. And the, each podcast has one episode per week. Um, so we've been doing this now for, um, gosh, it's close to seven years. So there's literally hundreds of episodes, pretty much any topic that you can think of uh, for running a consulting or coaching business. Smashing the Plateau is focused on established consulting and coaching businesses and going solo is for early stage businesses and making that transition from corporate to, um, to your own business. Great. Thank you. And are you on social media? Uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, I would say LinkedIn more than the others. So yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. If you have questions um, about running a consulting or coaching business, if you're thinking about launching one, um, feel free to reach out to me. If you go to smashingtheplateau.com, uh, my contact information is there. Uh, there there's a link to um, get in touch with me through LinkedIn as well from the website. Um, and if you want to use the old fashioned method, you can actually pick up the phone and make a phone call. It's 212-731-0770. And a live human answers the phone Monday through Friday, nine to five Eastern time. That's great, David. That's a unique um, a selling point right there for somebody to be able to um, connect with you, to actually be able to have a, a real conversation with you. David, thank you so much for being with me today. You've shared some really valuable nuggets that I know my listeners will appreciate. And I just want to also thank you for the great work you're doing in the world with your two podcasts and then the work that you do with your individual clients to help them make breakthroughs and build successful businesses. Thank you, Meredith. It's an honor to be on your show. And thank you for all the great work you've been doing for so many years. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com slash free and grab our ebook, Listen Like a Pro. You'll find out how to connect on a deeper level with the people who matter to you. And while you're there, check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.